You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 22nd day of November, 2009. I'd like to remind my listeners, as always, to check out the websites CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com on a regular basis for updates about our podcast interviews, articles, videos, and of course our long-term projects, the Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist documentary, and my forthcoming book, Reportage, which is due to be released either next month or early January. Also, please support the websites that help distribute this podcast, including KROCKS Radio 1 at zeropointradio.com, Cascadia Public Radio at cascadiapublicradio.org, and archive.org where you can find backups of all of the episodes going back to episode 70 in the event the Corbett Report server is ever down for any reason. Sharp-eyed observers of the Corbett Report's YouTube and Veracity videos accounts will know that we are approaching this week the release of the 100th video from the Corbett Report. So to mark the occasion, I'm putting together something that many people have requested over the years, which is a vodcast, a video RSS feed through which you can directly download the videos. That will be up and running this week and will be found under the subscribe tab, tab of CorbettReport.com. So please go there this week to check for that vodcast and to subscribe so that you can get the videos downloaded directly to your iTunes or podcatcher of choice. And that way you can be sure you'll never miss a Corbett Report video. And now without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Daniel Taylor at Old Thinker News. 20th of November 2009. New EU President Rompuy announces 2009 as first year of global governance, sees Copenhagen as step towards global management. The new EU President, Herman von Rompuy, has proclaimed 2009 as the first year of global governance. During Rompuy's intervention as President on November 19th, he stated, 2009 is also the first year of global governance, with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. Rump, we attended a Bilderberg dinner at Hertogenindel, Brussels on November 15th, 
during which he announced a plan to implement EU-wide taxes that will be paid directly to Brussels. Recently, Mario Borghesio, member of the European Parliament for Italy, spoke openly against the influence of globalist organizations such as the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission. Is it possible that no one has noticed that all three EU presidential candidates frequently attend Bilderberg or trilateral meetings, asked Borghesio? Rompuy will undoubtedly serve globalist interests during his reign of the European Union. Today's second real news story comes from the Corbett Report, 20th of November 2009. Climate bombshell. Hacker leaks thousands of emails showing conspiracy to hide the real data on man-made climate change. A hacker has leaked thousands of emails and documents from the Climate Research Unit at East Anglia University that appear to show how climate change data was fudged and the peer review process skewed to favor the man-made climate change hypothesis. The link to the data appears to have been posted to a number of climate science websites yesterday by an anonymous hacker or insider going by the name FOIA, an apparent allusion to the Freedom of Information Act in the United States. One of the first sites where the 62 megabyte file was posted was the AirVent. It was soon picked up by What's Up With That, Climate Audit, and other climate science sites. The information contained in the leaked emails and documents are as shocking as they are damning of the scientists who have been most vocal about the man-made global warming scare. Today's third real news story comes from Der Spiegel, 19th of November 2009. Climatologists baffled by global warming timeout. Global warming appears to have stalled. Climatologists are puzzled as to why average global temperatures have stopped rising over the last 10 years. Some attribute the trend to a lack of sunspots, while others explain it through ocean currents. At least the weather in Copenhagen is likely to be cooperating. The Danish Meteorological Institute predicts that temperatures in December, when the city will host the United Nations Climate Change Conference, will be one degree above the long-term average. Otherwise, however, not much is happening with global warming at the moment. The Earth's average temperatures have stopped climbing since the beginning of the millennium, and it even looks as though global warming could come to a standstill this year. Ironically, climate change appears to have stalled in the run-up to the upcoming World Summit in the Danish capital, where thousands of politicians, bureaucrats, scientists, business leaders, and environmental activists plan to negotiate a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Billions of euros are at stake in the negotiations. Today's fourth real news story comes to us from naturalnews.com via the New World Next Week. H1N1 super flu plague in Ukraine sparks concern and conspiracy theories about origin. So, again, from naturalnews.com, here's what we know with some degree of certainty about the H1N1 virus in Ukraine right now. Nearly 300 people have died from the viral strain and over 65,000 have been hospitalized. Actual numbers increasing by the hour. And again, this is probably even just a couple days old as now dated as things move so quickly. The virus appears to be either a highly aggressive mutation 
of the globally circulating H1N1 strain or a combination of three different influenza strains now circulating in Ukraine. Some observers suspect this new super flu might be labeled viral hemorrhagic pneumonia, meaning it destroys lung tissue until your lungs bleed, but that has not been confirmed by any official sources. Today's final real news story comes from the Street Insider at streetinsider.com. November 19th, 2009. Ron Paul's amendment to audit the Federal Reserve approved. A key House panel approved the Paul Grayson amendment by an overwhelming 43 to 26 Thursday afternoon, which will give watchdogs new authority to audit the Federal Reserve. We're living through exceptionally difficult times. The financial crisis and its dramatic impact on employment and budgets, the climate crisis which threatens our very survival. A period of anxiety, uncertainty and lack of confidence. Yet these problems can be overcome by a joint effort in our, and between our countries. 2009 is also the first year of global governance with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference in Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. Our mission our presidency is one of hope, supported by acts and by deeds. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 109 of the Corbett Report, The Crisis of Sovereignty. What you just heard was the translator translating the speech, the acceptance speech of the new EU president, Herman Van Rompuy. If you are saying to yourself, Herman who, you are certainly not alone. And in fact, this weekend was remarkable insofar, not only as the EU has now selected their first, and selected is a key word there, selected their first president under the new Lisbon Treaty, but also their first foreign minister. Yes, that's right. Two high representatives have been chosen and one of them is Lady Ashton, a British peer whose sole claim to fame seems to be that she has never held elected office, and I would add parenthetically, still does not. And Herman Van Rompuy, the Belgian Prime Minister, who has catapulted over Tony Blair to become the EU president. And for those who thought that Tony Blair was going to be the dictator puppet frontman for the EU globalists, well, it seems there's a new dictator puppet frontman. If you are asking yourself who elected these people, well, of course, the answer is no one. The better question to be asking yourself right now is who selected these people. And the answer to that is not surprising, but let's document it anyway. We have this article from info-wars.org from November 15th, 2009. Future EU president attends Bilderberg dinner. Quote, 
According to Detid, Belgian Prime Minister Herman van Rompuy, Christian Democrat, whose name is widely circulating as the first European president, attended a Bilderberg dinner at Hertogenendal, Brussels, last night. In his speech, he talked about the implementation of a green tax in Europe, a necessary measure to rebuild the economy. Apparently, this news of a possible new eco-tax is rapidly spreading through the cabinets in Europe's capitals. This might put a mortgage on Van Rompuy's candidacy for European presidency. According to the article, Van Rompuy was invited to give a speech at the dinner by Bilderberg chairman Etienne Davignon under the guarantee that the content of those meetings never leaks. A promise not quite kept. One might wonder how the information got out to the websites of all the mainstream Belgian newspapers today, considering that reporting in mainstream media about the Bilderberg Group and their historical relation to political candidates has always been effectively silenced. Then again, the authors of the article in Detide, who broke the story, give the impression that Van Rompuy has pulled an act of bravery by making his bold statements at such a dinner, rather than questioning why a prime minister and possible first European president was taking part in such a secretive event with highly influential statesmen and captains of industry. End quote. Wow, no surprise there, I suppose. Yes, for anyone who may have had lingering doubts about the, e the direction of the new Lisbon Treaty EU, there it is. Surprise, surprise. The new selected, not elected, European Union president happens to be a Bilderberg dinner attendee. Oh, isn't that sweet? They had him out for a nice uh, wine and dine before they gave him the presidency. And the new marching orders seem to be along the lines of instituting green taxes to rebuild the economy. Yes, instituting taxes on carbon dioxide, presumably, for a problem that doesn't exist, in order to rebuild the economy. Well, I think my listeners will be well-situated to parse all of the Orwellian doublespeak and all of the subtext going on there, especially, of course, listeners to my previous podcast episode on the Lisbon Treaty and what the EU really represents, which, of course, is just another manifestation of the New World ideology of a non-democratic, unelected, selected financial oligarchy that is implementing global government for its own aims and ends. Now, this is an essential point, and we have to go backwards in time to flesh this point out and understand it in its fuller context. So let's start this trip backwards in time to understand what's happening in the world today by going back a mere two weeks to my conversation with Daniel Estulin, who, as my listeners will no doubt know by now, uh, was able to sneak out documents from the G20 finance ministers meeting that took place in Scotland two weeks ago. Now, those documents, which are on BilderbergBook.com and have been hosted also on the Corbett Report website at CorbettReport.com, are essential documents. So I really hope my listeners will download them to preserve them. And I'd like to also put the further challenge out to any webmasters or anyone with a website to please host a copy of those on your server to make sure that those documents do not disappear down the internet memory hole. But at any rate, those documents contained some very interesting insider information about what the financial oligarchs are planning and plotting. And perhaps it's not all that surprising, but some of the 
specific ways that they're trying to implement their global tyranny are interesting nonetheless. So let's listen to a short excerpt from my conversation with Daniel Estulin, where he describes what the financial oligarchs are aiming at and how they are going to accomplish it. Uh, look, for example, at China. If the value of the promissory notes known as the United States dollar falls, China's situation becomes virtually hopeless with no remedy available to China from parts of the world other than the United States itself. So the question again is, why are these people, why are these people doing it? I believe it's part of the wholesale intent to destroy nation state republics. I believe I said that before on your show uh, in May. Call it new feudalism of the, of the 21st century. Again, the essence of feudalism is that 95% of the population lives and is treated like cattle, ill-fed, poorly educated, if at all, with low life expectancy, without hope of a better life for their children. Things are run from top by usurious oligarchy and its unelected flunkies, not responsible to any Republican constituency. And, of course, the goal of this top 5% is to enhance its own power and wealth, not to develop the nation, states, and the minds of the people. Of course, again, what's today called the Bilderberg Group or the Bilderberg Club is a top-down organization run by Synergy International. Bilderberg is is not exactly the control group it used to be 40 years ago, but still it's very important because it represents the Nazi fascist world company interests and, of course, the Dutch and the British royal houses, which, of course, uh, are the most important uh, uh, royal houses in the world. And the intent, long-range intent of all these people is the creation of what George Ball said back in 1968 is of the World Company Limited. So do we have any indication who the major players will be in this world company and how the developing nations are going to be brought on board with the idea? Um, I think uh, at this point we don't, uh, because, again, there's so many things happening so quickly that for a certain point uh, you may say that their plans are obviously uh, fairly far behind schedule because the initial idea was to create their world company by the year 2000. Uh, we're almost at uh, the end of 2009, beginning 2010. They're much closer than... Uh, uh, we would like to be, but not close enough to, as far as from their point of view, to where they would like to be at this stage. So, still a lot to be done. But again, the uh, uh, the wholesale destruction of nation states, republics, and the creation of uh, uh, pan uh, national unions is uh, is the most important element. And again, one of the key issues not discussed, and I'm saying it on your show exclusively, is the plan of the G20. Uh, to create, that's the next step in the globalization, uh, is the creation of the African Union. That is some key intelligence right there. So, so can you flesh that out in any way? So who is this coming from and how was it raised and how was it uh, debated and accepted at G20? Well, uh, again, I don't exactly know. It hasn't been uh, uh, accepted or debated enough. But we certainly have, again, at BilderbergBook.com documents where you could see uh, what looks like the, uh, the handwriting of German finance minister. But again, until I'm 100% uh, confident, I'm not going to say it is definitively his uh, writing. But one of the delegates had written one of the key issues uh, to be pushed over the next uh, year, year and a half, is the creation of uh, the uh, African Union. Now, the globalization of Africa's market is, again, as I said, is the key issue at this meeting. If anyone is wondering if this is just another conspiracy, again, please go to the webpage I just mentioned and see for yourself. The phrase that these people are using is, quote-unquote, take out borders. Now, the birth of regional blocks 
is the intermediary step in the Bilderberg-led globalist creation of multi-state unions modeled after the European Union, with governing agencies in each bloc gradually gaining powers that supersede the authority of the governments of the individual member nations. Now, again, everyone talks about the European Union, but actually there are quite a few of these blocs already uh, working and acting as blocs, such as, for example, ASEAN bloc, which is the Association of Southern Asian Nations, 10 member states, including Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Brunei. Then you have the APAC, not OPEC, but APAC, which is a 21 member states of the Asian Pacific Economic Group, including Australia, Canada, Chile, Japan, etc. Then you have the, uh, the economic community of West African states called the ECOWAS, 15 members such as Nigeria, Nigeria, Ghana. Then you have, of course, the Mercosur in South America. Then you have the SAR, S-A-A-R-C, SARC, which are the seven member states, including India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. And, of course, you have the Southern African Development Community, which is 14 member states, including South Africa, Angola, Zimbabwe, and a few others. Again, the creation of the borderless African continent will be spearheaded by the IMF. That's one of the things discussed at G20, with substantial help from the World Bank. Now, one of the papers we have in our possession, which we stole from the meeting, is IMF's article of agreement, which states, and again, it's highlighted in yellow. I didn't highlight it, or we didn't highlight it. It was highlighted by one of the attendees. It states, Article 1, to give confidence to members by making the general resources of the fund temporarily available to them under adequate safeguards. Well, anybody who knows James about IMF obviously realizes that working with these people is uh, bad news for business. The IMF is bad for business indeed, if one is talking about real business and not the crony monopoly capitalism that the financial oligarchs play. And certainly that is what Eshelin is talking about there. And it's certainly uh, some very interesting things that Eshelin brings up in that excerpt. So, of course, I would suggest that listeners go and listen to that interview in its entirety because it does contain bombshell information. But let's go over some of that. For example, Eshelin brings up the idea of an African Union or the erasing of African borders. And again, this does not come from Eshelin himself. It comes from the actual documents that were smuggled out from the G20 conference. And you can go and, again, please go and download those documents and take a look at the delegate's own handwriting in which he writes about the African Union and uses the phrase erasing national borders. And uh, very interesting indeed. Now, of course, there is an organization that goes by the name of African Union already, but it's something that's very much in its nascent stages at the moment, and certainly nothing like what the European Union has become, which is really a supranational entity, one of the largest polities in the world. And the African Union is maybe like what the European Union was uh, 20 or 30 years ago before it was even officially acknowledged that the European Union was a European Union. But we can find out a little bit more about the AU as it exists today from an article that came out this February, February 4th, 2009 on BBC News. AU Summit Extended Amid Divisions. Quote, An African Union summit in Ethiopia has been extended to a fourth day amid disagreements on the issue of creating a United States of Africa. Many leaders said the proposal by Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi would add a layer of bureaucracy that the continent does not need. 
but they did agree on changing the name of the AU Commission to AU Authority. Colonel Gaddafi has used his inaugural address as rotating head of the AU to push his long-cherished Unity Project. The Libyan leader said closer integration between African states should start immediately. He envisages a single African military force, a single currency, and a single passport for Africans to move freely around the continent. End quote. Well, what an idyllic wonderland that sounds like. I wonder who could possibly be opposed to such an idea. Well, at any rate, uh, I would suggest people take a look at that article, especially the uh, the changing, the fact that they could agree on the idea of changing the AU Commission's name to the AU Authority. An extremely telling little bit of linguistic uh, sleight of hand there. And I'll leave my listeners to go and think about that for themselves. But at any rate, certainly the African Union does not exist in the sense that the European Union exists right now, but certainly there are plans afoot to bring that about. And as Daniel Estulin points out, it's going to be brought about by the financial oligarchs who want such unions to be brought about in the way that they have, well, at least for the last several decades, th- wielded and, and used their power and influence around the world, which is through international and supposedly beneficent organizations like the IMF. Now, of course, it's no secret that the IMF has been long used as a weapon and a tool for dismantling nations, privatizing them, and making them part of the international new financial world order. The World Bank and the IMF were set up near the end of World War II, to rebuild the economies of Europe. Later they began offering loans to poor countries, but only if they privatized their economies and allowed Western corporations free access to their raw materials and markets. Debt has really been used as an instrument um, in order for the IMF and the World Bank to get their policies um, implemented in many developing countries. And we're into a situation now where the poorest countries are in a cycle, a vicious cycle of poverty. They can't get out. And the the kind of of debt cancellation that's been given still will not allow them to get out of this poverty trap. It's not a question of debt forgiveness, because actually many of the debts were incurred under pressure from the international institutions or were, were given in collusion with governments which weren't acting in the, in the interests of their people. Let me ask you, do you know the difference between Tanzania and Goldman Sachs? Tanzania is a country that has a gross national product of $2.2 billion and shares it between 25 million people. Goldman Sachs is an investment firm which has annual profits of $2.2 billion and shares them among 161 partners. That's the world we're living in now. What may come as a surprise, certainly not to my regular listeners, but to others in the general population who thought of themselves as being part of the old boys network of financial elites because they own uh, two houses and a yacht, They think they're part of the elite and that this is all designed for them. But 
Perhaps the surprising thing for those people is that, in fact, as has been planned all along, this weapon of financial destruction that the IMF has wielded in country after country after country around the globe is now being wheeled around and used to control, dismantle, and utterly take over the developed nations, including, of course, the crown jewel, the United States. Now let's look at this London G20 now. This is uh, a monstrosity. Brown, sitting on top of the bankrupt Bank of England, says the new world order is here. Strauss-Kahn, sitting on top of the bankrupt International Monetary Fund, says the IMF is back. And, of course, their idea is to make the special drawing rights, SDR, special drawing rights, into the world currency. A lot of people have been distracted by any number of things, I don't know, Ameros here and there. The likely hypothesis is what you see, that the special drawing rights of the IMF are going to be the world currency. We know that they're in the process of issuing more, a global quantitative easing reported in the London Daily Telegraph some uh, two weeks ago. Alistair Dalding in the U.S. Treasury working under the orders of George Soros and U.S. Treasury Advisor Ted Truman are gearing up special drawing rights. So that means we can have not only hyperinflation in the dollar, the euro, the yen, and the rest of them, we can also have hyperinflation of special drawing rights. So we've got a new dimension of pyramided hyperinflation going on. So as a result of this conference, the decision is at least as a pledge. Now, I hope everybody will welsh on this. I urge them to do it. Now that you're out of Barky's clutches, go home and don't do this. But they're pledged to put in $1.1 trillion to the International Monetary Fund. And this has to be contributed by the taxpayers of countries, by you. Guess what? Geithner, who... Uh, can't balance his turbo tax, right? Geithner, that little weasel from Wall Street, wants to give 100 billion with a B U.S. taxpayer dollars to the International Monetary Fund. So it's a total of 1,100 billion or 1.1 trillion for the IMF. Just like that, a new huge bailout. Again, I hope it won't happen. It may never happen. Let's hope it doesn't happen. But right now, this is where we're headed, so fight it. That was Webster Tarpley talking about the fallout from April's G20 summit in London, which decided about the special drawing rights, as it seems being set up to take the role of world currency. And of course, that being uh, created and, and used by the IMF as a tool for the financial oligarchs to construct this new world financial order behind the scenes, of course, behind the, the front and the cover of national currencies, which will retain their national flavor and look, but will be really behind the scenes operated through the central banks on an international system of special drawing rights administered by the IMF. So exactly as Estelin was pointing out from the smuggled G20 documents, the IMF is going to be a key instrument for wielding financial oligarch power in setting up their non-democratic globalist tyranny. 
Now, we've worked our way backwards to April of this year in order to flesh out these ideas a little bit more and understand the current context of the European Union, African Union, and all the other unions which are being shaped up and packaged for us right now under the guise of bringing nations together for unity and harmony and rebuilding our economies, which were destroyed by the financial terrorists on Wall Street and in the city of London, who were in fact in charge and in control the whole time, as has recently been uh, proven and demonstrated uh, in, in rather stunning fashion, even in the controlled corporate media, which is now finally getting on the story that, oh, by the way, the uh, it seems Goldman Sachs actually brought about the Bear Stearns collapse, which really initiated the entire financial collapse of 2008. But, uh, oh, it's it's just a coincidence that this was all engineered. No, this is obviously part of an unfolding plan, one that is going exactly according to plan, in fact, because we now see that the nations of the world are running into the arms of the global financial oligarchs to save them from this economic collapse by giving more and more of their national sovereignty to these non-democratic international organizations. Now, it is essential, once again, to take a step further back in history to understand that this is part of an unfolding plan, and in fact, a plan that was not merely cooked up in the last few years, one that has been unfolding for decades. How can we say that with any authority? Well, we can say it because people were talking about this decades ago, and in fact, they were predicting exactly how this was going to unfold, and exactly what the ramifications would be. In order to flesh this point out, let's go backwards in time to 1994. And at that time, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trades, GATT, which was the main international agreement governing international trade at that time, was undergoing a new round of talks to come up with a new version of the GATT agreement, and that was known as the Uruguay Round of Talks. And the Uruguay Round decided in 1994 that they had enough of a consensus to create a new body called the World Trade Organization. A very interesting time, and extremely interesting because it not only engendered all of the things that we are seeing unfold today, with, of course, the World Trade Organization taking on more and more authority uh, over the nations of the world, and people who need to be reminded of just how that's being accomplished could take a look at things like Codex Alimentarius, which we've talked about before in this podcast. That's just one example. But it's also interesting to go back to 1994, because at that time a split emerged in the financial oligarchs between the ones who wanted to continue with their plans for this new world financial order, a one world order of financial oligarch rule, and the other faction, which were very much cut from the same cloth, the same people, the same billionaires, the same financial oligarchs who even shared relatives with the other financial oligarchs. But a split emerged and here, in this moment of time, we could see people sounding the alarm and giving the warning about what was to come. One example of that was a very interesting person named James Goldsmith. 
He was part of a very well-established and well-entrenched family who had roots in Britain and France. And Goldsmith was, in fact, French, but spent much of his life in England and certainly was in many ways like the British lords and ladies. And Goldsmith was well-known for being a big-shot businessman who had built himself from the ground up, yada yada. At any rate, he was related to Rothschilds and hung out in that set, so he was obviously part of the in-crowd. But back in the early 90s, he saw the way that the global order was emerging, and he did not like what he saw because he understood what it meant for the future of this planet. Perhaps it was pangs of conscience, perhaps it was something else. Who are we to speculate? But at any rate, in the early 1990s, he was ringing the alarm as loudly as he could about things like the World Trade Organization and, later on in the decade, the European Union. A very interesting person and one that I suggest my listeners begin their own research into. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt of an interview that Bilderberger Charlie Rose conducted with James Goldsmith back in 1994 about the GATT, which was to become the World Trade Organization, and the ramifications of that which Goldsmith was warning about. This is a very interesting interview, so once again, I would encourage listeners to go to CorbettReport.com and take a look in the documentation list for today's episode in order to find the link to the entire episode of Charlie Rose, which is definitely well worth watching. But at any rate, let's take a listen to Bilderberger Charlie Rose interviewing James Goldsmith. Why is GATT bad at a time that uh, many people believe that NAFTA has proven, despite all the warnings, to be good for the United States and good for Mexico? All of the fears that Ross Perot and others forecast didn't happen. Now you come along and say that was very small. GATT is much larger. It will unleash an unemployment that will attack the economies around the world. What's the thesis that makes you believe that? Well, of course, NAFTA and GATT have totally different sizes. NAFTA was a free trade area with Mexico and Canada where it wasn't just economic, it was regional problems, you've got all sorts of neighborly problems that you have to solve between, them, between the three nations. But it's nothing. It's like Portugal and Greece was for us in Europe. What we're talking about in terms of GATT, we're talking about a free trade area with China, with India, with Vietnam, with Indonesia, with four billion people. You see, when GATT, this last round, this is the eighth round of GATT, started eight or nine years ago, the negotiations, the Uruguay round. When it started, the world was a completely different place. Since then, you've had four billion people who before were set aside, if you like, by held, held away from us by communism, by other ideologies, and they've all of a sudden joined the free market. Fine, that's fine. Secondly, those people have got massive unemployment. They have very fast-growing populations. They work for almost nothing compared to our populations. I mean, you can employ 47 people in Vietnam and the Philippines for one American. But that's what they said about NAFTA, too. Well, well yes, okay. but you're talking about 4 billion people. Right. You're not talking about 80, 80 million people. And quite apart from that, the idea that you can judge the results of NAFTA so far, in my view, is a bit naive because it's only been a few months. So let's wait in five years and see what's happening. 
But first, let's talk about GATT. Four billion people. You can employ them. Mexico's expensive labor compared to the other places. Now, what are the other changes that have taken place since Uruguay Grand started? Technology can be transferred anywhere in the world. Capital can be transferred instantaneously wherever the return is highest. So, today, you are to take two companies, two corporations. They make the same product. To be sold in the same market, because the whole concept of global free trade is you can make a product anywhere and sell it anywhere. They have access to the same technology. They have access to the same capital. They only have one difference. Cost of labor. 47 to 1. So they move. Now, what has been the result? We've, we've got some results. Some results are in. It isn't hypothesis. You take France. Uh, in Europe, we had uh, free trade started to emerge from 1973 onwards. That's when the Treaty of Rome was changed. During that 20-year period since then, the economy in France has grown by 80%. The number of unemployed has gone from 420,000 to 5.1 million. That's equivalent to 25 million in the States. Now, what is the good of having an economy that grows by 80% if your unemployment, people excluded from active economic life, goes from 420,000 to 5.1 million? You take Britain, same story, by the way. All right, let me make one other argument, though, mm -hmm. that when you say these people in, for example, the People's Republic of China mm -hmm. and India, 4 million people. 4 billion, yeah. 4 billion, I'm sorry. The argument is also made that they, all of a sudden, not only is there a question of the price of their labor, but it is a huge buying power that they have, that China, in the year, the new millennium, will be the world's fastest growing economy. That's great. And that it'll be a market. That's wonderful. And those people will be buying products. That's wonderful. From the industrialized world. And let's benefit from that. And we can work together. But how do you benefit from that without destroying ourselves? You go and you create a corporation in China and you build a factory in China. And what do you want to sell? Mugs? Sell mugs in China. And you conquer part of the Chinese market by competing their fan square in China. That's life. That's adding to the activity of China. You're a corporate citizen over there, you're working over there. But if you move a factory from the States and take that to China, not so as to conquer the Chinese market, but so as to re-import the goods into the States, mm -hmm. so as to get cheap labor, what are you doing? What you are doing is you are saying to your employees here, you're too expensive, folks. You want money, you want protection, you want unions, you want holidays, forget it. We can employ 47 people over there who want nothing. So don't confuse two issues. One is going out to participate in their growing economies by building there and conquering part of the market. The other is merely killing off employment in your own country getting rid of your own labor force, transferring it over there and importing it back, purely so as to increase your profit margins. So this is, as we say, part of a plan that goes back, well, at least into the 1990s, but does it go back further? Of course it does. As listeners to episode 58 of this podcast will already know, it goes back, well, at the very least to the 1960s, and much further, in fact, if you take this quote in context. But at any rate, this quote is extremely enlightening in showing that this is indeed part of a plan that has been unfolding for a very 
very long time and is finally in the latter stages of coming to fruition. Quote, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. The system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of the system was the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. The growth of financial capitalism made possible a centralization of world economic control and use of this power for the direct benefit of financiers and the indirect injury of all other economic groups. End quote. That, of course, was Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope. Now, people who do not know who Carol Quigley is or his significance, please, please go back and listen to episode 58 for more on understanding this plan that has been unfolding for, according to Quigley, at least a century now. So now that we've gone backwards in time to flesh out the historical context of this idea, it's time to go forwards. Because, as we know, this is a plan that is unfolding and... Right now, just as 1994 was a key critical moment in time in which the oligarchy could have been exposed and the breaks could have been applied if we had listened to people like James Goldsmith and not gone along with the WTO bureaucracy, or should that be tyranny? Well, exactly as 1994 was a key moment in time, so today, right now, is another key juncture at which there are key decisions that are being made and are just about to be made. And one of the first things that are going to come up in that agenda is next month, in fact, just two weeks from now, as the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference begins in Copenhagen, Denmark, to begin hammering out a replacement, a successor treaty, to replace the Kyoto Accord. And what is the significance of this? Treaty of Copenhagen would take away your constitution and replace it with a effectively a communistic world government. And I use the word communistic deliberately because there is no word in the treaty draft of uh, anything to do with election, ballots, votes, democracy, that doesn't figure at all. This treaty is designed under the name, of course, of pretending that there is a problem with the climate. Uh, it, it's aiming to set up a world government that will have the power to control all the world's financial and other markets. So no such thing as a free market anywhere in the world. And it will be able to intervene directly in the economic, taxation and financial affairs of any nation over the head of any government, whether elected or otherwise, and to intervene in your environment as well. And I have never seen an attempt by the bureaucrats to grab, effectively, by a coup d'etat, 
in secret so much power in one single treaty document. And they buried it very cleverly. There's 200 pages of the usual UN verbiage, most of it meaningless, most of it impenetrable. Every so often, it becomes clear just for a sentence or two. And those are the bits they really want to pass. So that if somebody turns around later and says, oh, well, we didn't realize we'd signed this, uh, the UN will be able to say, well, look, it's quite plain in the draft. There it says we're establishing a world government. We're not going to have it elected. We're going to give it power to intervene and to enforce its findings and to make you transfer wealth from the richer countries. And that, of course, the chief target of this treaty is America to third world countries in so-called reparation for so-called climate debt. Now, all of this, just at the time when we know that there is no problem with the climate, it's now been proved by direct measurement that the outgoing radiation that was supposed to be being trapped down here by greenhouse gases is nearly all escaping out to space just as it always used to, which means that the warming effect of CO2 is less than one-sixth of what the UN had thought it was. And even if the UN had been right, which we now know it wasn't about that, um, it would still take 33 years of having no carbon emissions at all anywhere worldwide to forestall just one Fahrenheit degree of warming. So in practice, there's nothing we could do about it anyway. So even though these facts are now known to be the case, Professor Richard Linton at MIT has written the paper that brings the scare to an end by replacing all the guesswork of the computer models by straightforward measurement and a very meticulous and careful measurement it is. That's the end of the scientific debate. There is no longer a climate scare and yet there is remaining a sort of flywheel effect. So many people have now signed up to the notion that there is a climate problem that there's a very real danger that unless you the people of America can stop this with your love and devotion to your constitution and your democracy a very real danger that that treaty will become law and if it does that's the end of your constitution, your democracy, your freedom, and your prosperity. That, of course, was Lord Monckton, who my listeners will probably know by now, has gone on a speaking tour of the United States and Canada recently to talk about the dangers of the Copenhagen Conference next month and how it is going to be, well, they're going to attempt to use it as an instrument for driving their wedge in to try to take greater control of the formerly sovereign nations of the world and to implement a giant scheme for redistributing wealth from the developed nations, not to the developing nations, but to the oligarchy itself. And it's going to be used as a way of ramping up global non-elected government. But don't take our word for it. Take Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations. Quote, Looking forward to Copenhagen, I have four benchmarks for success. Every country must do its utmost to reduce emissions from all major sources, including from deforestation. Developed countries must strengthen their midterm mitigation targets, which are currently nowhere close to the cuts that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says are needed. Developing countries must slow the rise in their emissions and accelerate green growth as part of their strategies to reduce poverty. A successful deal must strengthen the world's ability to cope with an already changing climate. In particular, it must provide comprehensive support 
to those who bear the heaviest climate impacts. Support for adaptation is not only an ethical imperative, it is a smart investment in a more stable, secure world. A deal needs to be backed by money and the means to deliver it. Developing countries need funding and technology so they can move quickly toward green growth. The solutions we discuss cannot be realized without substantial additional financing, including through carbon markets and private investment. A deal must include an equitable global governance structure. All countries must have a voice in how resources are deployed and managed. That is how trust will be built. End quote. Yes, for those who are hard of hearing, the key words there were equitable global governance structure. And for governance, of course, we have to mentally substitute government. And for equitable, well, we should really be thinking authoritarian, non-democratic, unelected. So instead of equitable global government structure, we could have said, for example, global non-democratic tyranny or I don't know, New World Order, what have you. Yes, the Copenhagen Conference is going to be one of the key benchmarks coming up in the very near future as one of the further tests of this ever-encroaching usurpation of national sovereignty towards these international organizations dominated by and for the financial oligarchs who are really, as always, pulling the strings. And you and I have no say whatsoever in these the decisions that these bodies make, and we will have no say whatsoever in whatever rough beast is born of this Copenhagen conference, which is why we have to head it off at the pass now, before anything can happen. The only time to strike out at this in an effective way, is before it develops, to discredit the system before they can build the momentum necessary to get their disgusting legislation passed. One key aspect of that is what Moncton has been doing, and some of the speeches that he have, has made already, I think, are good tools for waking people up to what's really going on. Perhaps another excellent way of discrediting this ridiculous process and exposing it for the manifest fraud that it is, is to point to the recent story about the hacked CRU emails. Now, I don't have time to get into that story right now, unfortunately, because it is a fascinating story, but I would suggest that people who haven't yet done so go and take a look at the video I released earlier this year of my interview with Dr. Tim Ball, where we talk about the Climate Research Unit and its propensity for hiding its raw data and its calculations from researchers who are interested in verifying their results as, you know, science tends to operate. That's a very interesting story. And then, of course, this week, there was a hacker, an insider, a whistleblower, we don't know who, who managed to release thousands of emails and documents which ex expose the climate research unit and the anthropogenic global warming fraudsters for what they are, people who are hoaxing the system into supporting their fraud. Again, a 
fascinating story, so I will include some documentation from places like Climate Audit and What's Up With That to go along with that to flesh that out in more detail. And I really suggest that people begin their research there and help spread this information, because this is one key way of discrediting the Copenhagen Conference. And we're being told right now that the Copenhagen Conference is going to be a failure and that there's no consensus and that the developed nations aren't on board and the developing nations aren't on board and there's no deal possible. And this is the exact type of rhetoric they always pull to try to convince people that there's nothing to worry about. This won't result in an international treaty. Just go back to sleep. And then, of course, the narrative will always go that at the end of the conference, at the final hour, at the 11.59, the last minute, they managed to pull out this remarkable treaty which will save the world. Oh, and it involves a new world government, and oh, it's going to be so great. So we have to be aware that they're playing this trick now, and we can't give up resisting this Copenhagen tyranny, which is coming in the pipeline in less than two weeks. Again, this is critical for understanding what's happening right now. And thankfully, amazingly, my voice is reaching all over the world now. And I've had a listener in Denmark contact me who has managed to get a press pass and will be in attendance at the Copenhagen conference doing reporting for the Corbett Report. And we hope to have video reports, interviews, and I will be interviewing this reporter, uh, hopefully live from the scene. So the Corbett Report will be here shedding light on this Copenhagen conference as it develops. But the onus is really, as always, on you, the listeners, the people out there en masse, taking this information and doing something with it. That is, spreading it and interpreting it and fleshing it out and providing context for it, researching it further and letting people know what's going on. Because the key, again, as always, is to discredit the system so they can't pull their tricks. And of course, the Copenhagen Conference is just one tiny part in a much, much broader unfolding agenda, but it is a part of it, and we have to stop each and every part as it comes along. This is not an easy process. It's a process that is designed to be a war of attrition, to wear us out and to stop us from acting, and we must not give in. We must not give up. On that note, I'll leave you today with the title track of DJ Chris Gio's new album, The Global Resistance. I hope people check it out and support him in his work. But that's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 110 of The Corbett Report, A Brief History of bio-warfare. Open open your eyes to the matrix. This is going out to the troopers and patriots. Living free and dying hard, speaking through battle scars. An army of one becomes a global resistance. Time to wake up and open your eyes to the matrix. This is going out to the troopers and patriots. Living free and dying hard, speaking through battle scars. An army of one becomes a global resistance. Like I was chosen by God, I was sent with a message to destroy the new world order and dispose of the wreckage. I've been broken and tested, reconstructed Invested, injected with truth Now the truth has me restless Distressed and aggravated as I rally the masses Out to make you see what I see when I wear my sunglasses Watch me singing like a bee, but my name ain't Cash. When we confront the tyranny, give them 33 lashes Of truth for the youth, for the red, white, and blue Fuck the mark of the devil and the NAU Bilderberg, CFR, keep your new world order We'll live
live as free men or we'll die as free souls. It's time to wake up and open your eyes to the matrix. This is going out to the truth as a patriot. Living free and dying hard, speaking through battle scars. An army of one becomes a global resistance. It's time to wake up and open your eyes to the matrix. This is going out to the truth as a patriot. Living free and dying hard, speaking through battle scars. An army of one becomes a global resistance.